Anthony Fleming. Um, an apology to start off with. Um, at the weekend, I was uh, carrying my 20-year-old, sorry, 20-month-old <laughs> grandson, uh, and I've ripped my back, so I'm on painkillers. So if I start to babble, then please tell me. Um, the other, the other thing I want to say really is about. Uh, to begin is about what a transition is and of course a transition is a learning experience so I think we need to understand uh, exactly what a transition is in relation to how we understand a learning experience and of course uh, I think we can characterize most of our learning experiences uh, certainly at the age that I've reached as rather poor learning experiences compared, for example, with my grandson, who is learning at a, an incredibly rapid rate. And, of course, what he's doing is transitioning as well, transitioning between different contexts, different time episodes, different experiences, and so forth. And the other thing I want to say, really, is to try and put it, put it within the study that we, we conducted to put it within, or to give it a bit of context in relation to what the government is doing. Um, the government, as many of you will be aware, have just produced a white paper about teaching and learning in higher education. And <coughs> if I had to sit down and to think of processes and procedures which would give a distorted view of teaching and learning processes in higher education, then perhaps I would have uh, followed, followed Mr. Johnson's prescriptions. Um, that is not the, not the one that is possibly going to become the next Prime Minister of the country, but his brother, um, the lesser-known Johnson, uh, who is responsible for this white paper. And... Quite clearly, what he's done is borrowed a model from Ofsted, which uh, has been which has been applied in schools, and then tried to apply it to higher education. And what I'm what I'm suggesting is that a proper understanding of teaching and learning processes in higher education, including transition processes, which are fundamentally about learning is a much more complicated affair than people like Mr. Johnson imagine it to be. And these reductive methodologies that, um, that are suggested in the white paper actually serve to distort the accounts, or will distort the accounts, I'm fairly certain, of higher education teaching and learning practices. What we sought to do in this, in this project um, a project that, as Pe that Penny mentioned, that Penny was a part of, um, and we also had some other distinguished people involved um, in the group of researchers, uh, such as David Watson, who died, I think, um, either last year or, or the year before. Um, many of you will have known David Watson, um, and, and, and other people. What we sought to do was to provide nuanced accounts of transition learning processes. Now, if I say that that took us two years to 
to do, then you could put that down to our inefficiency or ineptitude or whatever. Or you could put it down to the fact that these are complicated processes which cannot be simply reduced to a series of numbers as the white paper on teaching and learning in higher education envisages. As far as I'm concerned, it's a sad moment, um, if you like, in the history of the administration of higher education in the country. Okay, that's, that's just some background. That's just a few thoughts. Um, I could go on about it. Um, what I want to talk then really is about transitions. It's about the project we did, transitions and transformations of uh, postgraduate <coughs> students in higher education. And we looked at four particular types of transitions. Um, the one that's been talked about so far, far is the fourth one. Uh, from traditionally underrepresented backgrounds to academic settings. And of course these are, I mean, within that, that brief phrase there are a huge number of controversial concepts, ideas, and so forth. Um, what, for example, is an underrepresented background? What is a traditionally underrepresented background? What is an academic setting? What does it mean? What does it mean to those people who are going through that particular trans transition? The other three are more familiar, from a pure to applied discipline. So, for example, I work at the <coughs> Institute of Education in London, not far from here, and we have a large number of people who are transitioning from pure disciplines such as I don't know, physics or, or um, biology or whatever, to applied disciplines. And some people have talked about education as being an, an, an applied discipline. So they are learning to be educators. They're transitioning from, if you like, a pure discipline to an applied discipline. And the second is the notion of international context and, of course, um, we found a huge number of students who were uh, very prepared to, or very happy to talk to us about coming from another country with its different cultures, its different views of uh, academics and so forth, to the sort of culture that we are serving up on uh, education courses, applied, applied courses, applied discipline courses in the UK. And the third one is work intensification. We found a huge number of students that were prepared to talk to us about transitioning from full-time work to, for example, uh, part-time work and part-time study. A huge revolution, if you like, in their life, their life cycle, their life practices. So those are the four types of transitions we looked at. Um, I've mentioned the first one, this is the pure to applied, applied one, and this of course takes us into the realm of epistemology, it takes us into the realm of knowledge, it takes us into the realm of creating knowledge, and that's after all what we are doing when we, when we learn. 
And this, after all, is a learning exercise. It's not about the content of learning, or just the content of learning. It's about the experience of learning. So I think we have to try and understand these notions of transition as being about learning. Uh, and it refers to those students having taken the first degree in a non-applied subject and undertake <coughs> a higher degree with an applied orientation. This is how they learn. They learn through their experience. They learn from their experiences to other experiences. Uh, the international context, fairly, fairly uh, well, I was going to say fairly straightforward, because it's never straightforward. These things are never straightforward in terms of learning transitions. Uh, work intensification and non-traditional background. So this uh, brings up um, notions of widening participation agendas and so forth. Some characteristics of transitions. Penny was absolutely right to talk about uh, the, in her introduction, to talk about the notion of the non-linear uh, progress that one makes during a transition, during a learning process. It is not a straightforward, in that sense, process. But there is an element of time. We move through various time moments. Um, all our experiences are culturally embedded. All our experiences as learners are culturally embedded, even if we don't fully understand that or appreciate uh, the nature of the cultural experience that goes on. In other words, um, notions of authority that we as higher education teachers have are understood and can only be understood within a particular context and culture. Um, a student coming from, I don't know, Taiwan or somewhere, is going to have a different notion of authority than perhaps we have, uh, and certainly many, our, many of our so-called home students have. The sense in which um, higher education teaching and learning processes have a pathologizing element to them. Um, and I don't mean that in any startlingly medical sense. Uh, I don't mean that we're all pathologized if we go through these. I mean that there is an element of a notion of a normal student, a normal progress through a certain set, uh, a cer certain number of uh, processes they have to go through. And, of course, what is concomitant with that is the idea that if the student doesn't learn in that way, then they're doing something wrong. In other words, the right student, the wrong student. The pathologizing capacity of a learning program. And then also, I think, the notion of um, the position of the life course. So transitioning is about the position of the life course. But therefore, of course, we need to understand exactly what um, the life course means. And uh, I've suggested a few ideas there. Um, the life course as a stepped system of statuses. Um, so we think of ourselves, or we can think of ourselves, though perhaps we shouldn't think of ourselves like this, we can think of ourselves in terms of um, achieving different types of status at different moments in our lives. Uh, I am, for example, about to achieve, if that's the right word, um, 
a status of being retired. Now, of course, as you all know, academics don't retire. But they certainly go through some sort of process. It's not just a formal process where, whereby the, uh, the university or whatever stops paying us money. It's much more than that. It's also a learning process. So this is moving, if you like, from uh, one position to another. Um, learning markers. Moving as a stepsystem of learning markers. I mean, I tend to try to understand transitions in relation to learning, as I said before. But in terms of learning markers, so we learn, we reach a certain level of learning. Though I think, actually, the word level might be, might be, mis, might be misapplied. Um, because it's not just a question of moving, if you like, from a first degree to a secondary, a master's degree, to a PhD or whatever. It's, it's not nearly as neat and tidy as that. Um, but we do, we do, of course, set ourselves goals. We do set ourselves... Uh, we have intentions. And learning markers might be a way of trying to understand the notion of transitions. Life course as a step system of resource accumulations. So... The, um, uh, so we might want to think of the life course as accumulating uh, various forms of capital, social capital, cultural capital, economic capital, and as Penny suggested earlier on, emotional capital as well. Uh, I think very few of us actually do this very successfully. Um, certainly I seem to go backwards and forwards and sideways and all over the place in terms of developing emotional capital. And I sometimes wonder whether people who talk about when they reach 50 or 60 or whatever have reached a position of, I don't know, wisdom of some sort, or simply deceiving themselves. Uh, it doesn't seem to last very long, that feeling. Life course as a set system of career events, and thus as age-related. So career events... Um, the uh, I was talking with... Uh, an ex-VC the other day, and he, t he said, uh, I can hardly imagine when I was 20 being the, um, the principal director of a university. It was a sort of goal. You might have heard about um, Michael Heseltine, who's ex-Tory, <laughs> Secretary of State for Defence. Um, and he talked about, well, he wrote down on a piece of paper when he was 20 or something, uh, what he hoped to achieve. And, of course, at the bottom there was Prime Minister. Now, he never, never actually got there, of course, but, uh, because Margaret Thatcher intervened. But um, Some people do actually plot that in terms of career events. And finally, this, this very important notion, uh, this, this notion of identity. And I don't think that uh, we in this project, the project that culminated uh, in the book we wrote, um, really fully understood the notion of identity. And I think the reason for that was because, not that we didn't, I think, have the right methodology for trying to find that out, but I think the reason for that was because it is such an important and difficult and complicated notion. Um, I'm not sure how I would describe my identity. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to describe it in terms of uh, some forms of rather simple 
ethnic notions. Um, I mean, I was actually born in Australia, so that doesn't make me Australian. I mean, I left when I was very young. But again, there are certain influences on our life, which, of course, when we do things like <coughs> fill in the census, uh, we are asked to reduce to a simple set of markers. And I think this, again, distorts very complicated notions, such as the idea of identity. But transitions are about identity. They're about learning and they're about identity. We learn throughout our lives. So, there is a focus, familiarity, receptiveness. We focus on these things, negotiate, negotiate our, our ideas, ourselves. We rearrange, we formalise, we assess, we accredit. We do all these sorts of things in terms of the learning transitions that uh, we were looking at in terms of this project. We also have some notion, or a transition has some notion of an end point. Um, it, in other words, there is a progressive or teleological nature to any transition, even if we never get there. And I think this is a very important point, the last point on the screen, which is that transitions made by the person which do not fit expected and sanctioned forms of learners. I mean, I, I was very struck how everyone I talked to said, oh yes, we want our students to be independent learners. Um, and it just seemed to me that, first of all, that was being interpreted in a number of different ways, both by academics and, of course, by students. Uh, and secondly, um, actually what what they were doing was, was creating a norm about independent learning, creating a norm about learning. Um, and of course, if you create a norm about learning, you create a disnorm, uh, which, which, which fits some people, and which of course pathologizes those people. And what you're doing also is you are reducing your understanding reducing the complexity, as I said before, of this learning moment. Um, and I think we're very strong in higher education on setting norms for our students. Very strong. I think we're very weak in higher education at creating learning programs for, for our students. Um, because it's easy. It's easy to set a norm. Um, and in a sense, it's very irritating if you are engaging in a research project and you talk to lots of academics and all they tell you is, this is how a, lear this is how a learner should behave. It's also very um, uh, disconcerting for an overseas student coming into a program, a PhD program or a master's program or whatever, to be told that this is how you should behave, to be told what the norms are to be told that you are going to be, in some sense, told off or rejected or whatever if you don't meet that particular norm. So, expected and sanctioned forms of learning are very strong in higher education. And of course, this has a huge impact on how we actually, sorry, how we create learning programs and how our students actually learn. Uh, environmental transitions, clearly moving from 
different environments, geographical environments, learning environments, and so on. Identity transitions I've talked about. Learning transitions being the fundamental aspect of the learning process, of the um, transition process. Embodied transitions, discursive, narrative transitions, all types of transitions that different people go through. Identities being created. Identities being created during the learning process. Becoming and surviving as a postgraduate student. And for some, it is a moment of revelation. Uh, for other people, it's a moment of quite profound um, being disconcerted. Um, for some, they have expectations about what they want to do as learners. And then when they, when they get into the concrete situation of the university or whatever, they find it doesn't meet those expectations. They are disappointed. We found many of those types of experiences. For others, as I said, it is a question of hanging on by their teeth and surviving. What we also found, and this I suppose was uh, slightly disappointing, what we also found was that a lot of people, and I think this is more recent, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is more recent, a lot of people weren't actually concerned with the learning process at all. What they were concerned with was the credentializing process. In other words, what motivated them to go through the learning process was getting a degree at the other end. Um, some people um, insisted on giving themselves that credential before they'd actually achieved it. So I have a student that I'm struggling with, he's a PhD student at the moment, who has awarded himself a PhD without actually going through the process. Um, I did point this out to him and uh, he said, oh well, it doesn't really matter, does it? Um, so the point I'm making is that credentializing, having, being able to call yourself a doctor or getting the MA or getting the credential becomes the end point. And therefore, notions of grades, which have now become much more important in higher education, are all important. So I asked a recent MA student, uh, what are you hoping to achieve when you do your MA course here? And uh, she said, I'm hoping to get a distinction. And of course, distinction is defined in terms of a certain number of high grades within the course itself. Now, that was that was the only that was the point. That was the point of what she was doing. So, so sort of notions of learning, changing, uh, identity transformation, um, all those sorts of things had seemingly gone out of the gone out the window. They simply weren't important. Now, I don't know whether they were telling the truth. Perhaps, perhaps they did have more high idealistic notions of learning. But certainly this, seemed, this seems to me to have been a trend which has come in. And of course the government, in all sorts of different ways, and I could spend a long time talking about this, in all sorts of ways, has encouraged this notion. And the white paper will encourage this notion. So it is against a view of a liberal education. Endpoints, start points, learning the rules, 
understanding the process, the rule-bound process, generic, disciplinary and site processes, and incompatibilities between them. So, for example, um, we found that in the different disciplines, uh, I won't spend too much time on this, but in the different disciplines, they had a different view of a student, a different view of access to knowledge, a different view of identity, obviously, a different view of how that student should behave, much more marked perhaps at PhD level than at, um, than at master's level. Um, at PhD level, there was certainly a greater emphasis on the rightness of the disciplinary knowledge that had to be produced in the end by the student. The correctness, the rightness. Um, so epistemological issues were clearly much more important uh, at, that at that level. Deficit learners. The idea of the learner having a gap, having a having something, having a something that's not there, and it being filled, filled up, filled in. I don't know what the word is. Filled in by by the teacher, the all-knowing, authoritative teacher who comes along and says, "I will put it right. You have a you have a deficit. I will make sure you don't have a deficit at the end of the process." Um, the idea of training and education, again, uh, I could spend a long time on this, but uh, training is becoming much more important. Um, in-service training, of course, was always called in-service training in schools. Um, what, what has tend to, tended to happen is that the educative part of the in-service training has been replaced by um, a focus on on a set of right actions which the student then has to learn. And I think this is very much a, a government discourse, a government way of thinking about things. And not as I've been sort of talking about or, or stressing or, or, or um, putting forward, the idea of a transition being a learning process and a learning process being a complicated and profound act of being in the world. And of course, many students uh, do not conform and resist the new rules. What are we doing? Am I going too slow or too fast? What, what sort of time do you want me to? I'm doing right? Yes. Okay. Uh, control and power. Again, Penny mentioned this in her introduction. Um, I think these are, these are really important issues. But of course, there is another issue involved in this, which is the issue of um, how we actually understand control and power. Uh, because uh, uh, many manifestations of control and power are, of course, covered <coughs> up. They're covered up in all sorts of ways by us, by higher education institutions, by higher education teachers. Uh, notion of temporal regulation. Um, I don't know. I get. I get. Uh, I suppose the new the new administration um, has a take on temporal regulation, in the sense that uh, 20 years ago uh, they would have simply asked me to do something, 
Nowadays what they do is, and I get these, these messages three or four times a week, they ask me to do something within a certain time period. Time is being regulated. Um, through the administration, of course, this applies very much to students as well. So the regulation is becoming much, much fiercer for student learning. Abstract trust, as opposed to... Abstract trust is becoming, becoming a notion that is, that is strong within higher education, um, as opposed to something that is much more personalised, something that takes into account uh, the feelings, the aspirations, the expectations of students. I've already mentioned the notion of the power of disciplinarity and some of you might uh, disagree about uh, exactly what that means. But we certainly found this was um, an abiding and strong sense of control. Um, if you talk to lots of academics, I don't know if, it, if I went around this room or, or whatever, they would say things like, I am a sociologist. I mean, I fight with uh, a very well-known sociologist of education at the Institute of Education where I work, who's, um, who said to me, before I retire, the one thing I want, you to, want, to, want to do is to make sure that, or I want to persuade you that you are a sociologist of education. In other words, he sees his identity in terms of the discipline itself. It doesn't make any sense to me to be called a sociologist. It might make sense to you. But clearly what, what we are doing with our students is to some extent inducting them into a discipline with all the rules unspoken as well as spoken, unwritten as well as written rules of that discipline. So the discipline itself becomes the overriding concern. Not learning, not knowledge, not student identity, but the discipline. And of course, as we all know, disciplines fragment, uh, disciplines can be reformulated, disciplines change, some disciplines have a stronger sense of authority than others, and so forth. Tension between, strong tensions between learning experience of non-traditional students and forms of learning demanded <coughs> by institutions and uh, I'm always struck by how a huge effort is made clearly to to provide access to non-traditional students however we, however we want to understand what a non-traditional student is and that's a difficulty as well I agree but a huge effort is made and yet somehow this all the efforts that are made never really get to the heart of what it is to if you are a so-called non-traditional student, to access higher education, to access a master's course, to access a, a PhD course, or whatever. Um, the use of grades, this is a point that I've made already. The overemphasis on grades which cannot act in a formative sense. Confusion between processes of formative and summative assessment. The concern students have, the overwhelming concern they have, to uh, get the correct or the right or the top grade. Um, certainly in our master's programme at the Institute, and a lot of the uh, students in our study 
um, came from the Institute of Education or were studying at the Institute of Education. Um, uh, we have a system of um, three pass grades and a fail grade. So I spent, I must have spent hours on this, this notion of the, the line between the fail and the pass grades with some students. Um, the, the idea of the top grade, the number of grades you have to get to get a distinction and so forth. It's, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly dispiriting process. It really is. Because this is not actually what learning is about and it's not what access is about and it's not what transitioning is about. Um, students experiencing discipline specific teaching approaches. I would say that the government is concerned to create generic processes of teaching and learning. And that's a very important point, really, in terms of this, this white paper. And they're not doing it by specifying what teaching and learning is. What they're doing, actually, is by specifying what are the consequences for the teacher and for the student if they don't conform to a government notion of what is good teaching and learning. Uh, international students are critical of unhelpful organisational arrangements, um, bureaucratic assessment procedures, fairly obvious, fairly obvious things, but very important, very important um, uh, notions in terms of their, in terms of their experiences as learners. Um, formal acknowledgement of learner progress and offering negotiation, negotiation around published schedules were proposed as examples of showing such respect to these learners, but rarely ever worked. Creating connections between work and assessment, very difficult. Uh, I'm not talking here about having a credential which is then recognised in, the, um, in the workplace. Uh, for example, the, the um, professional doctor that I've, I've been associated with, the EDD, is barely recognised in the workplace. In other words, in schools. Some other professional doctorates are recognised um, and have status, but uh, certainly the EDD doesn't. Um, so creating connections between work and assessment and a lot of, a lot of um, uh, courses uh, in fact ask students to create connections. So what you had was a lot of fantasy connections being created by the students in order to satisfy the demands made by teachers about the work or the work practice uh, setting. Um, it was, it's, it's, it's almost heartbreaking, the, the sort of the fantasy learning that goes on sometimes with students. And I mean, I know I'm sounding quite pessimistic, and I think a lot of good learning goes on in higher education. But what I'm also suggesting is that also a lot of misplaced learning goes on in higher education. And it's misplaced for all the sorts of reasons that I've been talking about uh, over the last half an hour. Um, the opportunities to collaborate with peers. There's a problem of being overloaded with assessments at key transition points. An issue of level, a very important issue of identity, which I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to time and time again uh, during the day. Um, what, what is this course doing to me as a person? Who am I becoming 
What am I becoming as a result of this course? And so forth. What is the learning? How does the learning fit with the 40, 50 years of learning that, have un that I've undergone so far in my life? What is the purpose? What is the point? I know these sound like very existential questions, but I think they are important, and students do actually address these questions in various ways. Housekeeping issues, being treated with respect, but not being patronised. Technical issues, um, timetabling, flexibility, discretion. We're running out of time. I'm running out of time, not we, sorry. I'm running out of time. Um, and then I think quite an important issue really at the, at the bottom here, uh, cultural sensitivities. Um, I'm quite sure that during my 40 years in, uh, 30 years in higher education, I have stepped on a lot of, lot of toes through, through um, being culturally insensitive. And I think cultural sensitivities, sensitivities are important. On the other hand, there is bound to be, logically bound to be, some sort of movement from one set of cultural sensibilities to another. That's what, that's what doing a degree is about. That's what doing a master's degree is about or doing a PhD is about. It's not just about here is a set of, uh, I don't know, precepts for what an effective school is like and then writing those down. It's not about that. It's actually about learning. It's about identity. It's about all those, all those, uh, all those matters that are of importance to, or should be of importance to students. Um, it's not just about language, these deeply felt cultural sensitivities, not just about language, national, nationality and ethnicity, but also class, prior pre preparation, disability and special needs. So they're all about how the student is constructed. And of course, I think the most important idea really is that Actually, what higher education does is constructs the student in a particular way. Um, I think it's, it's, it's hard to deny that. And I think we are increasingly, and I won't go into the reasons for this, increasingly um, constructing students in particular ways that satisfy governments rather than in particular ways which satisfy or should satisfy um, good learning environments. And that, I think, is, is a shame. Uh, I really do. Uh, so I'll finish, really, on that note. There is, there is a little bit more, but, but I'll finish on that note by just suggesting that um, the issues that we are addressing today are actually of fundamental importance to all of us in this room. They're also, of course, of fundamental importance to all the students, all our students. Um, there is nothing more important, I think, than learning. And I think a lot of government, uh, government ideas, government white papers, government acts of parliament and so forth, fail to understand the notion of learning. They don't know what learning is. So actually what they do is they, they, they go for proxies for learning. And they, they understand these proxies as reflecting real learning processes when they don't at all. What they do is they distort learning processes. And um, I think our task, our concern, should be to try to understand 
learning processes uh, in their in-depth, uh, with full understanding, and these are difficult, uh, these are very difficult uh, processes, and they will not be achieved uh, if Mr. Johnson, uh, our Minister for Higher Education, gets his way. Thank you.